Hey, good morning, Bridgeway family. How are you doing today? You're doing good. You're doing good. My name is Casey Fry, and it's my privilege to be here to share God's word with you today. Lance Hahn is still on uh, sabbatical, but I've got good news. He's due to come back this month, so uh, we'll see Lance soon. I had a chance to spend some extended time with him recently. Uh, we laughed our fannies off, and uh, I can tell you the guy is living in flip-flops and T-shirts, and uh, he's doing well. I, I, I think this time away is going to prove to be really beneficial for him and ultimately for the Bridgeway Church family. But um, I'm really grateful for uh, how deep of a bench we have here at Bridgeway that so many people have been coming across the stage sharing God's word, rightly dividing God's word, impacting us in incredible ways. The guys that have been coming across the stage have been terrific. Uh, and I'm, I'm really mindful. I was thinking about two weeks ago, I was in uh, one of these seats and Eric Upton was bringing the word and he was talking about uh, radical uh, forgiveness. And uh, I will tell you this, what he, what he uh, shared changed my Monday. I can't go into all the details, but I'll tell you, it was a small fiasco at, at Starbucks that Monday morning. <laughs> no joke. And uh, every fiber in me was being tested that moment as I was second in line. And the disaster that was happening with the person that was first in line normally would have caused me to go, <sighs> late for work, can't believe this. But God gave me an incredible amount of grace in that moment based in large part on what Eric had just been sharing about radical forgiveness. And uh, as I was in the auditorium that weekend, uh, I was filled with a little bit of anxiety because I knew that I was going to be coming up and teaching in a few weeks and he was bringing it. And I remember he was telling this story about, you know, he goes into Home Depot and he sees the plastic paint tarp cover. And as a youth pastor, when he sees that, you'll remember this, he sees a slip and slide, right? Well, I'm sitting in this chair going, oh man, when I see that plastic paint tarp cover, you know what I see? A plastic paint tarp cover. So I'm sitting there going, man, I don't know if I can bring it. And then last week, if you were here, you heard Brian Kiley unpack an incredible message about radical love. And he talked about uh, coexistence and tolerance in a way that I've never heard. This guy is, is opening God's word for me and for us, and he's changing my life. And I'm so thankful the way God is using him. Uh, he talked about how, how this uh, tolerance for one another or this coexistence with one another falls woefully short of God's call for us to love one another. And Brian Kylie, through the word of God, changing my life. In fact, that very day, Brian said something that altered my afternoon. Last week, Brian used the word proclivity. And in that moment, I thought, uh-oh. I don't even know what proclivity means. I don't even know what proclivity means. So that afternoon, it was a fiasco as I looked for the Webster's Dictionary to figure out what proclivity means. And Brian, if you're in here or if you're listening or watching online, I'll tell you this. I only go as far as propensity. All right? You cannot be dropping words like proclivity on me. 
God's good. He's faithful. And he has provided us with a steady diet of meat from his word in these weeks while Lance has been gone. I know we're excited for him to come back, but uh, God has been so faithful to us. And uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I, I told my wife this weekend as we were heading in to, uh, to get ready for Saturday service, I said, honey, I'm, I'm nervous. Here's the reality. I'm going to be talking for three hours and it, there, I'm bound to say something dumb. In three hours. Now, <laughs> it's just going to happen. That's just the way it is. Now, some of you are thinking right now, and you're looking at your neighbor going, uh, did he just say he's going to be talking for three hours? <laughs> See, I was adding up all four services. You only get to or have to endure one of them. But, but I was thinking, I'm going to be saying things for three hours over the weekend, the span of that time, and I'm bound to say something dumb, bound to say something that's misinterpreted. And I hope that as we dive into God's word today, that you can hear clearly my heart. That you can hear clearly my motives. And I want so much to communicate to you, my Bridgeway family, God's word for us today. This is my home church. You are my people. (laughs) Kathy and I have been going here for five years. And it's our pleasure and our honor to serve Christ the King here in this community. And if you are taking in this message and this service today in one of our online venues or or streaming live, we just want to welcome you and uh, invite you to chew on God's word with us today as we dive in. So Eric was talking about radical forgiveness. Brian was talking about radical love. And here's where we're going today, friends. Radical relationship. A radical relationship with the living God. Today we'll probably be in part, maybe one third of unpacking the text together. It'll probably be about a third of me sharing recent, relevant testimony of how God has wrecking some stuff in my life right now. And it will probably end up being about one-third confessions of a part-time lunatic by the time we wrap this thing up. Because God has got me topsy-turvy right now, friends. And I just want to share with you what he's doing. The main concept today is this. We're going to talk about when honor comes from the other side. That is to say, when honor comes to the Father from outcasts. More than it comes from his own children. And our text today, our text is going to be a combo of Matthew chapter 8 in part and Luke chapter 7 and 8. And we will do the blended gospels up on the screen. Uh, Otherwise, I think it's too complicated to follow when we're flipping back and forth between the two. And we are doing part 34 today of our blended gospel series entitled Being... Jesus. And as we start, I want to give you a couple things to chew on. I want to remind all of us that our God is the God of the unexpected. This is not meant to be heresy, but our God is at times extremely unreasonable. Our God is unpredictable, and our God is the God of the unlikely. Unexpected in this regard, who would have thought that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would have been born among livestock and spent his first night laid in a trough? 
That's unexpected. How about the battle of Jericho? Completely unreasonable that God would win a battle by simply asking his people to march around the city. It's unreasonable. Yet he did it. (laughs) Unpredictable. Nobody in their right mind, nobody, not one, would have put money on David in his battle with Goliath. Completely unpredictable. And speaking of David, how about unlikely? When Samuel is going to anoint the new king of Israel, he goes to Jesse's house and says, Jesse, bring your boys here. One of your boys will be the king of Israel. And Jesse brings in nearly all of his sons. And Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any more kids? And Jesse says, well, there's the one, but he's still out in the field. And Samuel says, we'll bring him in. I'm not going to sit down until he gets here. Completely unlikely that God would use the boy that was the outsider or the outcast. Here's your fill in the blank for today. Be careful not to quench God's glory through unlikely sources. Be careful not to quench God's glory through unlikely sources. Today we're going to open up several different passages in Matthew 8 and Luke 7 and 8. And when we do, we're going to look at three outcasts, three specific outcasts and what their interaction was with the Messiah. The first is um, an account of the centurion's sick servant and Jesus' healing of that servant. And I want you to notice before we dive into our combo account that that Luke, in his account, identifies that the centurion is using intermediaries, go-betweens, to relay a message back and forth to Jesus. Matthew does not take the time to pinpoint that specificity. That Matthew goes straight to the heart of the issue, captures the essence, and doesn't talk about the intermediaries. But as we read through this, you will see these go-betweens. And we're starting with this. Let's toss that up there, the combo account. We'll read through it together. When Jesus had finished saying all of this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, when Jesus had finished saying all of this, here's what it is. Jesus has just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. That's, what, that's where Brian Kylie left us last week. Jesus has just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, and the, and the folks had heard it. Now, when Jesus had finished saying all of this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the uh, Jews, some of the elders of the Jews to him, asking him for help to come and heal his servant. First thing I want to unpack with you is this. What in the world is a centurion? In the Roman army, the centurion was the professional, elite 
full-time fighting soldier and commander of the Roman army. The Roman army was broken typically into a legion of 6,000 men. And a legion was divided into 60 centuries, and each century contained 100 men. And the commander of those 100 men was a centurion, full-time, elite fighting commander in the Roman Empire. There's two things I want us to notice in that first passage. You've got a full-time, elite, fighting commander who loves his servant, who loves his slave, in so much that he would enlist the help of the Jewish elders to go to the healer and ask for help. It was really uncommon, really uncommon at that time for a Roman citizen to value their servant like that. During this time, in fact, Aristotle said that a servant was nothing more than a talking tool. But to this centurion, he valued, he valued his servant. And here's the other thing that I want you to notice that's really interesting. When he asked the Jewish elders to go to Jesus, they did it on his behalf. Now, they may have done it out of fear, but I'm going to show you in a moment. I don't, I don't think it was fear. So Jesus sent some of the elders of the Jews to him, asking him for help to come and heal his servant. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed in terrible suffering. When they came to Jesus, this is the Jewish elders. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. And he's built our synagogue. Jesus said to him, I will go and I'll heal him. So Jesus went with them. I just want to stop again and say, we've got a really unique centurion on our hands right now. This cat loves his servant. And this is crazy. The Jewish people are saying he loves our people. We've got a loving professional fighting commander, and I've got to think that's rare. I've got to think that is rare. So Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. More uniqueness right here. We have a centurion in this situation who is respectful and humble. Respectful and humble. Uh, Respectful of Jesus in that he didn't consider himself worthy to even come to Jesus himself. And respectful of Jesus as a rabbi, as a Jew, knowing if Jesus comes into my house as a Gentile, he will not be 
he will now be uh, uh, ceremoniously unclean for entering a, a Gentile's house. And he says to Jesus, don't trouble yourself with the uncleanness that will happen while you enter my home. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. In this moment, this rare centurion is acknowledging the full authority of the Messiah. He knows that Jesus can just speak the word. And from a distance, his actions will be carried out. And then listen to what happens next. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished, amazed. You know how tough it must be to astonish Jesus? Now, this is not what I'm talking about. I don't mean when we fall into sin again and he goes, this is amazing. I can't believe this. No, 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 no. He was pleasantly astonished by this. And I don't want us to miss what it is that astonished him. Love. Humility. Faith and a full acknowledgement of God's authority. And this is what Jesus said. And turning to the crowd, Jesus said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then Jesus blows this crowd away in saying... I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom or the the heirs of the kingdom or the sons of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wait, what? Jesus just toppled the paradigm of a Jewish crowd by saying, this centurion, this outcast, an outcast by birth, gets an invitation to the great banquet for the Messiah with all the patriarchs that have come before in the heavenlies. This centurion, who's disqualified by birth? Yep. Yeah, that centurion. And that the sons of the kingdom, the heirs of the kingdom, qualified by birth, will be out in this place that's a description of hell? Whoa, whoa, whoa. They had to be reeling by what they heard. Now, one thing that's interesting is that in a short, in a short time, in Luke 14, Jesus takes us a step further and says almost the same thing in the form of a parable. We'll probably get to that passage in a few weeks where he gives the same warning about the great banquet and who will be in 
and who will be out. And then in verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go and it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Before we move on to our next outcast, I just want to examine a few things because I don't want us to miss it. Some of the, the ironies in this passage. We have in this passage a servant loving centurion. In this passage, we have a Jew loving centurion. This guy, his heart beats with love for people that the culture says he should have no relationship with at all. But he's a lover of people. This is, this is one bad dude. He is a professional, elite fighting commander, and we find in him such honorable humility In this story, we see Jesus healing from a distance. Jesus did not go into the house and touch the servant and heal the servant. He healed from a distance. And in this particular instance, we see Jesus healing through middlemen. You see, it was not the sick, near-death servant that asked Jesus to heal him. It was go-betweens who went to Jesus. And I would say two layers of go-betweens. First, the centurion, and then the Jewish elders approaching Jesus, asking for help. And here's what I want us to take away from this first segment that we're in right now. This is it. You've got an outcast by birth. Welcomed to the banquet. A centurion who's humble, who's loving, and who's fully driven by faith. I want to look at our second outcast, and it comes to us from Luke chapter 7. So, this is kind of funny or ironic or beautiful, however you want to look at it. But Jesus just got done with this exchange in Capernaum with the centurion servant, and now he's going to find himself at Simon the Pharisee's house. Now, this passage that we're about to look at, it's so funny. I preached this same passage two years ago on this same stage. And when uh, I was assigned this text, I laughed. I went, ha, I know this story. But this time around, I'm, actually, I'm reading it with, with a whole new perspective. And certainly worth us diving into. In Luke 7, 36 through 50, our second outcast. Now, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, she was weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them 
with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Let's stop right there just for a moment. This is our second outcast. She's a Jewish woman. She is qualified for the banquet by birth. But she is an outcast nevertheless because she's disqualified by her behavior. Her life, her journey is stained with poor choices and sin. In this particular case, you know, most commentaries agree this woman was a prostitute. It says that she was a woman of the city and she had a bad reputation and people knew it. She is disqualified by her behavior from the banquet. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In one moment, in his own house, at his own banquet, Simon the Pharisee judges this woman and he judges the king of the universe. He judged her and he judged Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she's a sinner. That's what he was saying in his heart. And then Jesus answered him. <laughs> you know I love that. Jesus answers Simon's thoughts and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning towards the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is given little loves little, Simon. And, he said to, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We got our centurion over here, disqualified by birth. 
We've got our prostitute over here disqualified by her behavior. I want to examine our third outcast. It is Simon the Pharisee. Fully qualified for the great banquet by birth. Fully qualified by his genetics. Fully qualified by his pious deeds. Yet Jesus rebukes him. How is it that someone fully qualified like Simon the Pharisee, who is actually hosting a banquet for the Messiah, misses him entirely and ends up judging the Messiah. How does that happen? This is what I think happened. I think Simon the Pharisee fell in love with the religious system of knowing and keeping the law. And as a result, he completely missed the fact that the Messiah was in his house. He fell in love with a religious system of knowing and keeping the law. Here's where this is going to get crazy, friends. Me, Casey Fry, I am not so much like the centurion. And I'm not so much like the prostitute. I'm a lot like Simon. The two outcasts are engaged. They are engaged in acts of humility. They are engaged in acts of love. And they're driven by faith. Simon, on the other hand, is self-righteous. He's critical and he's cynical. And so am I. You see, I have been the guy for 30 years of walking with the Lord. I've been the guy that is saying sola scriptura, only the word of God. And that resonates with some of you in here because you're just like me and it's excellent. We need to know the word of God. We need to be spending time in it. It is transforming our lives. But for what purpose? For what purpose? You see, Christ came to give us a relationship with him. And for 30 years, I fear that my relationship has been more with his word than with him directly. Some of this is freaking you out right now. Because you either are bracing yourself for the heresy you think is coming, or you're going, uh-oh, maybe I'm a little like Simon. 
Let me give you an example. This right here. These are three love letters from my beautiful, loving wife, Kathy. I keep them at my office. She was kind enough to put the date on one of them. <laughs> and uh, one of them's 14 years old. I cherish them. When I read them, they fill me up with so much joy. They reveal her character. They reveal her love for me. It confirms who I know her to be. But friends, I would be out of my mind to stay late at work, reading these over and over and over again, while my radiant bride is waiting at home for a real relationship. Now, some of you might be going, uh-oh. Did he just diminish the word of God? Nah. If you heard that, you're not listening close enough. What I just did was I elevated the author. I elevated the author. You see, I'm not, I'm not uh, deceived into, think, into thinking that it was Luke and Matthew that wrote these chapters. They were merely the tool of the Holy Spirit while the Holy Spirit was penning his love letter to you and to me. I don't diminish the word of God. I esteem it. For 30 years, I've had my nose in this book and it's changed who I am. This is the holy, perfect, inerrant word of the living God. His message of redemption to us. It reveals his love. It reveals his character. It's profitable for reproof and for correction that you and I would be trained up. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And God says it won't come back to him void. I esteem this. But I've been trapped with a little bit of fear. And the fear is this. See, this is crystal clear. When I put my nose into this, it's black and white. It's tangible. But this relationship with the Spirit of God, now that's mysterious. It can get a little crazy. It can get a little wild. It can be ambiguous. The Holy Spirit of God is all-powerful, all-knowing, not bound by space, distance or time and he is here specifically for us sent by Jesus who said it is better that I go to prepare a place for you I'm sending you a helper well guess what he didn't send us a life coach he sent us God here right now but I have been over here with Simon, clinging to what is black and white. And if I'm honest, a little afraid of pursuing a relationship with the mysterious spirit of the living God. Because over here in that relationship with the living God, it can get a little messy. You ready for the confessions of a part-time lunatic? Here they come. My wife, 
my wife is interacting with God in ways that I never have. My wife is hearing from God in ways that I never have. She is experiencing things with God that blow my mind. And I'm looking at this going, God is not talking to me like he is talking to my wife. He is not showing me the same stuff my wife sees. And so I'm having this awakening right now going, oh, man, have I been clinging to the word of God to know it better? Or have I been reading it to know him better? And my mind's messed up right now, friends. Because I've got a front row seat to watch my bride go deeper with the Lord. And let me tell you something about her. If you know her, and if you know her well, you know she's among the most credible people you would ever meet in your life. And for 30 years I've been walking with the Lord, and my wife, she's not coming to me right now saying, you know, Case, you've been doing it wrong. She's not saying, you know, I'm quite a ways down this road further than you. (laughs) And she is certainly not saying to me, you're probably not even saved. Of course not. You know what my wife is doing? She's putting on love and humility and faith. And she's saying, honey... There's more. And I'm going, really? Come on. Really? Now, for 30 years, I've been watching these people who are pursuing this active relationship with the Spirit of God and everything that comes along with that. While I have been over here a little put off by it, to be honest with you, Clinging to the word of God because it's so much more concrete. It's just not that messy. In fact, if I'm honest with you, I would tell you this, that that I'm the guy, although I say sola scriptura, I'm also the guy that says, come on, can't, can't I just be the moral employee? Can't I just be the moral neighbor who occasionally mows his lawn? Can't I, thank you, can't I just, oh, thank all of you, um, uh, Can't I just have a a solid 39-minute sermon that confirms what I already believe and just give me five songs that I can really connect with, an annual church picnic with plenty of shade, with a good macaroni salad that's properly salted, and maybe once or twice a year I'll break out my checkbook and I'll scratch a check out and send somebody on some short-term overseas mission. Can't I just be that? And yes, I can. And I've got my loving, humble wife telling me, There's more. There's more. And so for 30 years, I've been watching these people that are chasing after the Spirit of God, a genuine relationship with the Spirit of God. And I have been over here, and some of you are going to relate to this. I hope you don't feel like this is an insult. I've been looking over there in my cynicism and in my criticism and in my self-righteousness saying, man, that is just like a wackadoo circus over there. 
I've been over here acting like a Berean who studies the scriptures for accuracy. And I've been forming my arguments. And here's what I'm coming to learn right now after 30 years as I'm only now starting to scratch the surface. This is what I'm seeing. There are people who write blogs. There are people who read blogs. There are people that respond to blogs. There are people that form their arguments. There are people who get grounded in sound theology. And then there's my wife who's wetting the pages of her Bible with her tears while she wears out our carpet. And to me, it's not a mystery why God's not talking to me, how he's talking to her. Because there's those that are wearing out their carpet in prayer, interacting with the spirit of the living God. And there are those that are over here forming arguments. And I know which one I am. Now, you Bereans that are over here with me that are studying the scriptures for accuracy and grounding yourselves in solid, solid theology, keep doing it. You have to. We need it. But for 30 years, I have felt like I have to put my Bible down and take my brain out in order to come join the wackadoo circus. And here's what I'm learning. This wackadoo circus over here, all they keep doing is loving me. And they want to pray for me. And I'm falling in love with them. Because in their humility and in their love and in their faith, they're becoming less and less off-putting to me. And those of you that I love that are over here in the wackadoo circus with my wife... <laughs> I know some of those Bereans over there are real off-putting. But we need them. You see, this pursuit of God's spirit out into the wild unknown. We have got to be grounded in the word of God so that we can test those things that are out here a little wild against the word of God. I have been living for 30 years like it's one or the other. And just now, even as I reference these love letters from my wife, I think, man, these love letters, they reveal who she is. And then she again confirms what they say. Yeah. Yeah. I have no clue where I am in these notes. <laughs> Oh, I know what I was going to say. So, so here I am, the Berean, Sola Scriptura. And here's my wife telling me there's more. And um, I'm coming to understand right now, and it, and it is a little scary for me, because it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. It's a little scary for me to realize that the Word of God that God is contained in this book. 
yet he is not contained by it. Because he's the author, he is greater than his masterpiece. He's the author. And this book is designed to get me into a deeper relationship with him. Even if it gets a little messy sometimes. If there's more authenticity in this living relationship with the living God by his spirit. If there's more there. Then I'm inclined to wade through the baloney and the inauthentic. You see, I want to be somewhere where I'm gathered with people that are, that are rushing headlong, radically, unfettered towards the Spirit of God, cautiously. But as a Berean over here, my proclivity, you see that? My proclivity is to be cynical and to be critical. And these beloved over here, their proclivity could be to not be cautious. And here's what's beautiful. When we recognize that we need one another, the Bereans over here, you know what they need? They need a fire to pursue the spirit of the living God. And these over here, they have got to be armed with the word of God. There's too many hazards if we're not. And here's what's happening in my household and I hope it's contagious. That there is a beautiful balance of needing one another. And that when we come together with a passion for the Spirit of God and sound theology, we become the potent, radiant bride of Christ. And we are not complete. We are not complete without one another. So here's what happened to me last week. It's scary. Last Saturday morning, I had a couple religious people knock on my door. Now, if you're like me, and some of you are, you're saying, hmm, I wonder what kind they were. But see, here's what I'm thinking. What kind they were, that doesn't matter. Unless I'm starting to form my argument, which I'm not called to do. So what kind were they? I said what kind they were. They were people. So here I am faced with the dilemma that you have all had. Am I going to form my arguments and go downstairs and have a diplomatic sparring match? Or am I just not going to go to the door? Come on, you've been there. <laughs> and I hear the words of my wife confirmed by the word of my God saying, there's more. And I thought, really, Lord? 
No. <laughs> so here's what I did. First thing I did was I put a shirt on. <laughs> I figured I owed that to them. And I went downstairs and I met them near the end of my driveway. And I said, can I pray for you? And they said, why? I was stuck. And I said, well, I'm just wondering if anybody has prayed for you today. And I imagine that your feet and your knees and your legs are probably growing weary today. And it's really hot out here and I can see that you're sweating. And I just wonder if I can pray for you. And in that moment, I was terrified. I thought, certainly I'm going to walk in from outside and there's going to be a passport to Africa on the dining room table and God's going to have me on a plane this afternoon. <laughs> but he didn't. In fact, uh, they did not grant me permission to pray for them. And that's okay. I'll get another chance, right? Yeah. But here's what I realized last Saturday morning. I do not have to abandon sound theology in order to love people. In fact, if my theology is sound, I know that that's my number one calling. How you guys doing? We're in the home stretch, friends, okay? The last part of the text for us to unpack is this. It's from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon after, he went on through cities and villages, that is Jesus, and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women, uh-oh, got some women hanging out with the rabbi. Doesn't he know they're outcasts? No, he's just loving people. He's just honoring people. And some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, one, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And then there's Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Here's the last thing I want us to see. You've got Mary Magdalene, Someone from the highways and byways who had seven demons cast out of her. And you've got Joanna, who is in the household of Herod because she is married to Herod's financial planner. How different could these two gals be from one another? Yet here they are, unified, following Jesus. The bride of Christ is diverse by design. Christ's prayer for us is, is that we would be unified, radiant, and potent. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your kindness to me. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, God, that you 
are an outcast adopter. That in your kindness, you are melting away my cynicism and my criticism and my self-righteousness. Cloak me, God, and cloak these ones near me, my dear brothers and sisters. Cloak us in your humility. Cloak us, God, in your acts of love. And cloak us, God, in faith, because that is the passport to give us access to who you are. We love you. We're learning to love you more. And help us, God, to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So here's the deal, friends. We are not quite done. We're going to celebrate with music. And because it's the first full weekend of the month, we're going to celebrate with communion. And in a moment, the ushers are going to come forward and they're going to pass out the elements of communion, the juice and the cracker. And on most months when we do this, we wait for one another and we take it together. Well, our service today is a little wonky. And so I'm going to invite you that when that tray goes by, you grab the cup, you grab the juice. And go ahead and take it on your own as you're ready in the midst of these songs of worship. And as you hold them in your hand, I want you to remember this. That the God who is wanting so much to be in a deeper relationship with you and with I started this whole process by coming to earth. And on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was given up for arrest, and prepared for crucifixion, he sat down at a banquet with those who were closest to him. And he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And he took the wine. He poured it out and he says, this is my blood. It's a symbol of a new covenant. Not a covenant of knowing and keeping the law. A covenant of love and grace. And here's the cool part. It's my favorite part of this whole thing. 